Good morning. Um, My name is Whitley Bechtel, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture for this morning. And it comes from Acts 11, 1 through 18. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were served throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from the heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message, message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John, be baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, good morning. It's good to be together once again. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts 11. Um, or maybe your phones, you can scroll through. Acts 11, we're going to be, as you heard, verses 1 to 18. And as we do that, let's pause and uh, turn to the Lord. Lord, you are worthy of our gathering here, and we have left our homes. We have left all the other things that we could be doing right now to come and to gather and to sing and to sit at your feet and hear your word. And so we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be uh, moving among us, and we pray that in the same way that uh, he came to the Gentiles and spoke to the Jews, Lord, would you speak to us from your word. Uh, We humble ourselves before you and, and beg you to do so. And we pray this in the powerful and strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So in the book, The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, the main character, is the preeminent homebody. He uh, loves his quaint, comfortable, warm, well-taken-care-of hole in the ground. His pantry is full. Everything has its place, and he likes it that way. His floors are clean and swept. And then as the story progresses... The dwarves come and change everything. As uninvited guests, they eat his food, they move his things around, they soil his floors, and they far overstay his welcome. 
But they came for his help. They came to invite him on to this great adventure, this glorious and good adventure uh, journey for good for them to reclaim their, uh, their home back from the dragon, so to speak. And rather than joining in, Bilbo is befuddled by their disregard for his doilies. His comfort was his calling, and he was content for it to stay that way. And that's us. We like things to go the way we think they should go. We like things to go the way we want them to go, the way they have gone in the past. And we don't like surprises that work against our comfort and convictions. And in this, we often get in the way of something glorious happened, like Bilbo. And we see that happening in Acts 11, in the Jewish uh, Christians in Jerusalem. And as we prepare to enter into our text, you'll notice that it's quite similar to our text from last week that Ben preached out of Acts 10. And this repetition of the story is not redundant, but it's significant. It's saying something. 11 out of the 18 verses of this story, basically a, a retelling of what happened in Acts 10. And Peter's preaching the gospel to unbelieving Gentiles in Acts 10, and here he's preaching to believing Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The content might be the same, but the context and its outcome are different. And in the first couple verses, we hear about word of Peter's journey to the Gentiles was spreading like wildfire. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem had heard about the Gentiles receiving God's word. They've heard about them coming to faith in Christ. And yet, what is their first response? They're essentially saying, Peter, you got some explaining to do. You ate with uncircumcised men. Their primary concern is not the power of God, but the policing of the law. They criticized his communion with the Gentiles and totally bypassed what had resulted from it. And this happened for two reasons, some of which Ben outlined last week, but I want to go over it again. The Jews were legitimately abiding by the good law that God had given to them for their good. The law purposefully set them apart from the Lord. And in this passage, the Jews are named the circumcision party. That doesn't mean they're having a celebration. That means they're a collection of people that in some ways are defined by the fact that they're circumcised. And circumcision was given to the people of God as a physical sign of their membership in the people of God and as recipients of God's blessing as a result. And it and the rest of the law are, were a good gift to them, and they were legitimately abiding by it. And yet the law was never supposed to be an end in and of itself, but a means to reveal the, reveal the good character of God, his righteousness, his justice, his favor. However, the Jews used the law and its physical sign of circumcision as a tool to bolster their position as insiders and as a justification for their disdain for outsiders. They saw it as a barrier primarily se separating them from the world rather than setting them apart for the world. And as a result, the law became primarily a statement about the uncleanness of the world 
rather than a statement about the Lord's delight in and unmerited favor for his people. And his posture produced pride in them rather than a humble delight in the Lord that overflows into a love for the world. And that's what God had promised all along, that the people of God would be a blessing to the world. And Jesus himself showed that very same thing. Obedience to the Father led him to be with and to draw near to the lowly, to the despised, to the outcast, to the Gentile. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. So the question for us today is, why were the Jews so like they were criticizing the fact that Peter was doing that very same thing that Jesus had already done. The Jews were so concerned with their adherence to their interpretation of the law and its application that they failed to see the glory of what God was doing right before their eyes. And we see this in uh, the, the life of Christ in Luke 13. There's a story about Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And there is a woman that comes along who had had a disabling spirit, it says, for 18 years. She could barely stand up straight for 18 years. And Jesus sets aside his teaching in the synagogue and approaches her, touches her body, heals her, and she begins to glorify God as a result. And what happens next? The ruler of the synagogue, a Pharisee, comes up and says, no, 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 this isn't right. You can't come uh, and be healed. There's six days of the week to do that. The Sabbath isn't one of them. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Or later on in Luke 14, he's basically speaking to the same kind of person. He says, if your son falls into a well on the Sabbath day, are you not going to climb in and bring him out? It's absurd what they're saying. And as he said these things, we read that all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that he was doing. Same thing with the Jews here in Acts 11. The Jews continually miss God's movement of grace because they saw the law as the ultimate end rather than a tool to know and relate with the living God, which is exactly what the Sabbath day was all about. And God knew that in Acts 11, the Jews were going to resist what he was doing because it was so counter-cultural from what they had known. And so he moves, graciously moves, so supernaturally that they might be uh, very clear about the fact that this is God's movement, this is God's will, it's not the will of man. So Peter didn't plan what happened in Acts 10. He wasn't thinking, oh, I've heard about this guy Cornelius, I should go over and preach to them. Cornelius didn't plan this. He wasn't uh, looking for Peter. This was a movement of the triune God. It's God who reveals himself to Cornelius. God makes the first move. God chooses to do what he's about to do. God's the one that reveals himself to Peter and shows him that all men and and all food are clean and tells him, hey, there's going to be three men that are going to come, totally random, three men are going to come that you're probably not going to want to go with. Go with them without hesitation. 
It was God who told the Gentiles, listen up to what Peter has to say. Peter preaches a nine-verse sermon, literally simply recounting what happened in the life of Christ. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the fact that Peter and others were witnesses of this resurrection. And before he can even finish, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentile. And they start speaking in these foreign tongues, whether those were angelic tongues or whether they were other languages, perhaps, of other people that were present. They start extolling God, lifting up their voices loud with shouts of glory to God. This is a movement of the Lord, not man. And you can see that, and you look through the different characters through the story. What does Peter do? He listens and responds. What does Cornelius do? He listens and responds. The Gentiles, they listen and respond. The spread of God's gospel to the Gentiles was absurd to the Jews. And here, here God is drawing near to an uncircumcised and unclean people. And even more, the Gentiles don't simply come to faith in Jesus. They don't simply start worshiping God. The living God comes and takes up residence within them. He invades what formerly was deemed unclean and shows his glory there which is a fulfillment of all sorts of passages throughout the Old Testament, one of which is Ezekiel 36. And God is speaking to the Jewish people about the fact that they had profaned his name among the nations, in some ways in their twisting of the law, the way that they had shut out the world rather than were a blessing to the world. And he says this, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Acts 10 to 11 is clear fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. The Lord is vindicating his name by bringing the nations to him, invading stony hearts and exchanging them for soft hearts that delight to do his will, that want to obey his law. Not because they have to, but because they want to, because the Holy Spirit has changed their hearts. And it is this global mission of God that transcends the social barriers that divide the world. And all of it is done in and through the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done and is applied by the Holy Spirit that indwells us. 
For it is Christ who has broken down in his flesh through his cross and resurrection the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, think circumcision, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. In the new covenant, it is not circumcision, the work of our hands in our flesh that makes us the Lord's. It is the work of Christ in his flesh and his spirit's dwelling in ours that makes us his and transforms our hearts and brings unity in the body of Christ. This movement is grand and that is why Peter in verse 17 says, who was I to get in God's way? And in the same way that Jesus put the Pharisee to shame in Luke 13, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem are silenced. They have no counter-argument, no further critique. And their silence is a symbol of their humble reckoning with God's gracious movement toward the Gentiles. But their silence was not temporary, Their silence gives way to glory. They glorified God. And they say, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance itself is a gift that he gives to the Gentiles. The living Christ had won them over through his servant, Peter. They move from critique to praise, which is the right response to God's radical inclusivity of the Gentiles. God's welcome of the Gentiles is not just gracious, it is glorious. It is what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he says, the mystery that is hidden for ages, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This has now been revealed through the Lord's holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. He goes on to say that this was the plan all along. That through the church, he might reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The Jews were not only silenced. This glorious gospel movement of God was not just coming to the Jewish believers and radiating his wisdom to them. He's radiating it to the principalities in the spiritual realm and heavenly places in such a way that we almost get a sense they're shocked at God's grace. They're shocked that God's goodness is spreading into dark places, into sinners' hearts. And that's what God's plan has always been, that through his people, his wisdom would radiate in all the world. The glory of God in the church is that its doors are open wide. Jesus drew near, pursued, and was eager to welcome and wash all who would come to him. And the question for us today is, are we? Are we so eager? Or are we standing in God's way? And most of us, would immediately say, well, of course not. We believe God's grace is for anyone, right? We believe that, that Jesus is 
eager to welcome, and we, we believe that same thing, and yet it's our behavior that reveals our true belief. Does our life reflect the radical inclusivity and dignifying nature of his grace? Like the Jews, we so often twist God's law in such a way that turns us as his people into predominantly an exclusive people. We're more passionate and outspoken for what we're against rather than what we're for. There are things that we are and should be against. We need to name sin as sin. And yet we can so easily use the law as a sword, as a weapon, rather than a lens through which we see the world and seek to walk in obedience to God, which is love for the world. We wield our convictions in a way that builds barriers rather than bridges. We see the law as something that purely condemns rather than something that was made to drive us and others to the welcoming grace of Jesus Christ. Have we deemed certain people unclean and worthy of utter rejection? Have we deemed people not worth our time, not worth our comfort? Do we scoff at those living certain lifestyles? Say addiction, homosexuality. Do we avoid people and say, we don't want to communicate our approval of their sin? Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't approving of their sin. He was communing with them them as the living God who draws near to sinners. Jesus ate with them that the religious folk deemed unclean. And what might the Lord do if we drew near to the same people that he did? And yet, this doesn't just apply to the extremes. We can talk about that. That's very challenging. Yet, it doesn't just apply in those places. One very practical place that we can apply this is our community groups. I'm the Connections pastor, so I'm thinking about those things. It's so easy for our communities to become exclusively inward-focused. We naturally drift toward the formation of cliques rather than grace-grounded, commissioned communities. We want to be comfortable, but the grace of Jesus leads us into uncomfortable places and gives us the guidance and the power to follow him there. So why not maintain an open chair policy in our community groups in which anyone can invite a visitor at any given point. Now, there might need to be communication about that. You don't want to just spring that on your group. What if one of your group members meets a gal at Starbucks who's struggling, who needs support, or, or maybe is uh, seeking spiritual things and, and asking good questions? What if you suspended your entire study for a week, welcomed her in, and said, let's study a chapter from The Reason for God? Tim Keller's reason for God. Let's sit and talk about these hard things that we're um, engaging with in terms of um, bringing in an outsider. Maybe they're going through a difficult time. What would it be like for the people of God to draw them in and care for them? Would they be welcome in your group? And yes, trust is hard to come by, and with it comes safety that helps us share our needs with each other, helps us be vulnerable with each other. 
and bringing something, someone new is, is going to unsettle that. But what are we here for as a church? If not to draw people into a community of grace. Our fellowship as believers is a river, not a pool. A river is vibrant. A pool can become stagnant. Gross things can grow there. God's grace flows to us and through us. So consider even we have our refugee community. They're different. We don't know how to relate to them sometimes. Consider approaching Neil and Tona and ask, hey, how can I be involved in helping welcome in our refugee community? That's a movement of God. God has been a part of welcoming them into our church. How can we get out of God's way in that situation together? And so we can't be like the Jews in this. The gospel, the spread of the gospel is at stake. And yet, if, if you find yourself hearing all this and you just feel guilty and you just feel so overly burdened that you're like, oh man, it's another thing for me to fix in my life. Another thing that I'm not doing well. I feel so much to do. I think what Jesus says to us is come to me. Let me show my delight in you. Let me embrace you as the outsider. Let me touch you in the places that you feel unclean. Let me change your heart by my gracious delight in you. Like Peter, he invites you to participate with him in what he's doing. What a gift that is. Like Bilbo, he's inviting you into a great adventure that will ask you to leave the comfort of home, but it promises the joy of loving those that he does and seeing what it, what it is when he changes hearts and he redeems the people around us and in that redeems the world. And in our participation, we touch the heart of God for the outsider and for us and we find that our delight in God actually increases as we participate with him. He is inviting us to walk with him and witness what he will do if we would just get out of his way. That's our call today. And that's the good news of the gospel of grace that meets us and moves us in his way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, take us, take us as your own. We are your own. You have purchased us. We are yours and you are ours. Take us and make us like Jesus in this way. Convict us where we need to be convicted in these things, but encourage our hearts where we need to be encouraged. Meet us with your grace that, that drives us into these things. And in that, Lord, I pray that you would radiate your glory in and through our church and build us up as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.